All right, all right. Welcome to the Michael Slate Show. That's right. I'm back. All right. And back with a big, just really happy to be back, okay? And uh, and let everybody know, in case you don't, I am Michael Slate. And anyone else who claims that they are, no, okay, they can do it too. All right? No. Anyway, <laughs> we've got a great show today, and I'm really looking forward to this. So let's get started, all right? I don't want to have to be at the end of the show and saying, wait, 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 we need 10, just two more minutes, all right? Because we do have a great show today, and it's really important that people dig into this. At the back end of the show, we'll be speaking with Peter Richards, the director of a play with a very long title, a public reading of an unproduced screenplay about the death of Walt Disney. It's a very funny and very serious play, so don't miss it. I've seen it quite a number of times, and I think it's really, it's really a good play, all right? And before that, we'll, talk, we'll be talking with Noche Diaz, national spokesperson for the Revolution Club, on the war in Ukraine, the role of the U.S., and why it's important to have a scientific understanding of all this. And it is extremely important, especially in a world as it is today, to have a scientific understanding of all this. And right now, I'm very happy to welcome Merle Hoffman to the show. Now, Merle Hoffman is an internationally known leader in the struggle for women's rights, health care uh, pioneer... And she's the founder of Women's Health, political and re reproductive rights organizations, and a prize-winning writer and publisher. She is fighting today to prevent the Supreme Court from ending Roe v. Wade. That's right, you heard me. Those bastards are talking about they're going to end Roe v. Wade. Yeah, okay. And I'm so glad that she's here to talk about this, all right? She is one of the co-initiators of Rise Up for, for, uh, abortion, for Abortion Rights, Merle, welcome to the show. Hi, very good to be with you, Matt. Yeah, <laughs> it's, thanks. And, and I, you know, I, I, I'm really serious with this. I want to really dig into this. You know, it's, it's, it's just so you sit there and when you re, every now and then you see something that just is pounding and demanding and, you know, somebody speak to it. And I was really moved. I think you, you speak to this quite well. So I've got a number of questions about the dire situation we're in, but I want to start with the actions of Rise Up for Abortion Rights. What do you have planned for the next week? Because right, this is very well, important. We this have is a lot of, right, we have a lot of very uh, exciting things planned, important things, profound things. Uh, we are going, this will be our third action. We started with uh, my going to, uh, our going uh, to St. Patrick's Cathedral 33 years after I went you know, before, to raise the alarm that women's rights are in a state of emergency. And then we had a, uh, a major rally and march on March 8th about the same issues. And now we're calling for this uh, in April, on April 9th. And we're going to be at Union Square in L.A. They're going to be at uh, Hollywood and Highland. So in New York, I'll tell you what we're going to be doing in New York. We're going to have, uh, again, a massive rally and a very intense march. We are calling on everyone to wear green. Now, why green? Because green is actually the color that the women in Latin America, who did something quite extraordinary. I mean, this, these are three Catholic countries that the outpouring of women and their voices and their rage and their insistence on legal abortion changed the tide and decriminalized abortion in, in three countries in Latin America, Colombia, Argentina, and, and they wore green. That was the color of their uprising. Uh, what, what does green mean? Obviously, the earth 
and this is coming out of the earth of our souls and our bodies and regeneration and regrowth. I like to think of a lot of these women as warriors of light. So I think of the sun and the sun shining through the darkness of ignorance and stupidity and misogyny and cruelty. So that's what we're planning, and we expect it to to be a tremendously powerful uh, statement out there. Yeah, I really, it, it needs to be. It really needs to be. And things people need yeah. to wake up. People need to actually stand up and shake up too, because this is this, this is, you know, this kind of this is the kind of basically the program that we that we need need to have our arm in to have actually be able to say, look, this is what we need. This is what we have to have. Okay, and I, you know, I want to I want to talk to you. I, there's a number of questions I want to ask you, and I think you know we're talking about how people can get involved, and I want to ask you this. I want to talk about what's at stake. We really do have to deal with what's at stake. You recently wrote that the right to decide when or whether not to be a mother is the front line and the bottom line of women's bottom freedom. Line of women's freedom and women's humanity and women's citizenship and every mm-hmm. country boundary geography in this world. You know, um, my my body is like I say is my country. I am here to protect and defend it and stand up. But the issue and and the tremendous problem is the challenge and the struggle against apathy. You know, I have been in this for 51 years now. I founded my medical center 51 years ago. And what politicized me, Matt, is when they cut off Medicaid funding for poor women. Do you know about that? I hope your listeners should know about mm-hmm. that. Because in 1977, Republican Congressman Henry Hyde decided if he couldn't save all the babies, he'd just save the babies of the poor. So what did he do? He cut off abortion funding for poor women. Now, these were my patients. These were the women that were struggling, in minority, you know, young uh, so so I, I was so incensed, and I had uh, gone to Queens College. I just wrote up a pamphlet, and I went over to the, uh, to the campus, and I went into the building, and I walked down the halls, and I knocked on the doors of the uh, professors who were teaching, and I asked if I could address the class. I guess I didn't look too threatening, so they said, sure, <laughs> and I went in, and I, I, I just started to, to talk. And I said, are you aware of what's happening? Do you realize that now poor women, young women, minority women will not be able to access abortion services? And Queen's College was a, a middle class, mainly white, uh, you know, university. And they, to a person, looked at me and said, really? Well, you know, I'll always be able to get an abortion. I'll be able to access care. You know, I can fly to Puerto Rico at the time, or there was a place in Philadelphia. And at that point in time, I saw and understood the class bifurcation, the race bifurcation in this issue. And this is still going on. And I want people to know that the Hyde Amendment is still in effect. And uh, Obama and Clinton et al. have allowed it to remain in effect because it was one of those compromises that they made with the representatives of the Catholic Church to get a, the Affordable Care Act passed. So I think it's, it's really important to understand that people, and, and then you put in, 
you know, uh, the millennial situation and, you know, their reality is very much in digital, in the digital world. And if it doesn't affect me, it doesn't exist. So the wake-up call, you know, it's, it's, it's critical, but it's going to be a great challenge, a great challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's, it's actually, you know, this is the whole situation we're talking about. And when I was thinking about this and, and getting ready to, you know, to talk with you, this whole point about forced motherhood is, enslaved, is female enslavement, when women are not free, no one is free. You know, this is something that I think is way just got, you know, uh, when I was, you know, 17, 17, 18, 19, 20, there was a hot movement around this, you know, and I think it's really very important that, that people recognize that that movement has in and out, it has times, but it's also, there's a, there's a problem here that when we're talking about all this, that there's a, there's a situation of how do, how are people actually able to, you know, to, to, to basically take this up in a way that is necessary, you know, and there's, you know, because there's another thing that you posted on, on Twitter about another reason why we, uh, we in America are in the position that we're in is that we don't know or honor our history and the main... Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. You know. uh, yeah. I mean, because everybody is living in the urgency of now, which was a, uh, a phrase that Obama used. But that's absolutely true. You know, I know people who won't read anything, you know, past 1980. It, it, it's as if Everything is not only being discovered, but reconfigured, reconstructed, deconstructed. And if everything, you see, if everything is socially constructed, then there is really no reality and there is no absolute truth. And I have debated this with many people, but there is one absolute truth that I'm going to stand on as I speak to you today. And that's the absolute truth of the over one million women I've seen come to choices who have made the decision to terminate a pregnancy for whatever reason, and it doesn't have to be rape, and it doesn't have to be incest, and it doesn't have to be some kind of horrendous situation. It's just the decision, the moral decision, of the woman who says, I do not want to have a child at this time. So that is an absolute truth for me, and I stand on that truth. But if everything is debatable and if everything can be not only socially constructed but redefined, then you have another issue, don't you? Because what's true and what isn't true? I also know that half of this country, which I said in 2012 in the National Press Club, when Dana Milbank of the Washington Post accused me of being a narcissist and, very, and it's in the papers, you know, and being so involved with myself because I talked about my own abortion, you see. I said, you know, to the National Press Club, yes, I've made the decision because, you see, the enemy has outposts in our head, right? Mm-hmm. We cannot really own up to the responsibility of making the decision of terminating the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And I ask everybody who's politically involved, and thinks politically, why is it? And how is it that the gay rights movement has made such an extraordinarily leap forward in maybe 20 years? I mean, people 20, 25 years ago, you know, it was such a, a shame and a horror that there is suicides and all sorts of awful things that we know about. But now people are getting married and in the pages of the New York Times. And the women who have made a decision to have abortion will not come out of the closet, and they're in a worse closet than the homosexuals have been, okay? Mm-hmm. So 
You know, I mean, there's multiple, multiple scenes and multiple, multiple pressures that are disenabling individuals from taking, you know, taking control of their own thought process and, and thinking critically and saying, yes, if this right is taken away from women in Kentucky and, you know, Arizona, in Florida, if we're going to push the limits back to 15 weeks, this affects me because these women are my sisters. But there's no thinking like that. There's no radical sense of compassion or empathy. Everybody is there in their own little silo. So this also is the enormous challenge. You know, there's something I, I really want to actually uh, follow back on, too, because I think it's, it's something that people need to, need to hear and need to understand. And it's this whole point about for decades that the pro-choice movement and, you know, has, has relied on the courts in a, in a big, big way. Within a couple of months, late, uh, late last year, this remedy disappeared. On September 1st, the Texas anti-women, anti-abortion uh, law went into, into effect with the blessings of the Supreme Court and its large majority of Christian fascist judges. And all right. of this, okay. you know, let's, let's talk right. about that a little. Yes, let's talk about the fact that when I, I was at a luncheon with uh, Ginsburg, you know, the, the justice mm -hmm. and I asked her the question. I said, wouldn't it have been better if the right to terminate a pregnancy, <laughs> the right to abortion was under the 13th Amendment, which is the Amendment Against Slavery? Because it is when you are forced to carry a child against your will, that is enforced slavery. And she said to me that the women should not rely on the votes of the Supreme Court because it's one person that can make that decision. And she actually wrote about this, Matt, before, many, many years before. She was not, she was happy with the result of Roe, but not with the process of Roe or the way it was developed. Because basically the right to privacy comes under the same rubric as the right to read pornography in your own home. You have the privacy to do that. Okay. Let's let's leave the law because, you know, the law has the law is not justice. Sometimes it may slip into a just <laughs> verdict or something. But it, it attempts and, and nobody is perfect and no institution that people make is perfect. But um what what distresses me is yes, yes, we, we depend on the law because in a sense that's all that's all we have to hopefully keep this, what we think is a democracy together, right? Mm -hmm. So um, so what is the option, Matt? You know, if one doesn't, you know, uh, you see, you can get pressure from the people that creates laws and creates reality. And to that, I would say, let's look at the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, en enormous changes. Some of them are political theater. Okay, you know, we always have that. But some are real changes. And why aren't women out in the streets like that? Well, I've been talking for the last few minutes of some of the reasons why they're not. But that's what would be needed, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And let me just say one other thing that needs to happen, which is I want to let people know that you're listening to The Michael Slate Show. And... This is a, folks, this is a really important, this is a really important discussion we're having. And it's, you know, it's not something that people should turn back from. It's something that actually people need to listen to. And Merle, you've been, you've been saying some really, you know, provocative stuff and some good stuff that people need to hear. And I also want to, I want to get back to this, this other point too, though, that, you know, this thing about, look, you know, as you were starting to hit at, at we in America are in the position that we're in. 
is the reason that we're in that position is that is that, that we do not know or honor our history, and that this, and, you know this is something that actually people have said, and and the and the main and the mainstream pro-choice and feminist movements are busy telling us how to live in a post-Roe world. For, you know, and this is this is a big problem, I think, in this, to a certain extent. There's a, you know, there's a, there's this whole question of their, their the view of the post-Roe world, you know, which is like doesn't come to doesn't come close to the horror that that the world would be for tens right. of millions well, of women. So go ahead. But yes, but but we've been living in this world for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, people people, <laughs> you you know, I've seen patients from Texas. I've seen patients from other states where. It's, it, it, they may be able to go above 15 weeks, but there's no providers. My friend George Tiller was shot in the head in the church in Kansas. I mean, you, you know, there is there is a major major history here. Uh, we look, abortion is still legal, but it's impossible for a great great number of women. And yes, this has been going on for decades. Uh, and the, I'd say. I'd say the pro-choice movement, you know, the the error that I see so profoundly is that they minimize the opposition, and that's 101 when you're in a, you know, a great battle as this is. You can't, you know, after abortion was legalized, and, you know, that was in, in nationally, it was in 73, but in New York, it was in 70. About two years later, I started to have the the people outside the clinic, you know, the anti-screaming, you're, you know, you're killing your babies, et cetera, et cetera. They would always laugh at them and laugh at them and, you know, when their feet were up, and I'm talking about the organizations now, they'll never overturn it. They couldn't overturn it. It's impossible. They'll never. Meanwhile, you know, the antis, they work, they work, they work. They have their radicals who kill people. They harass, they invade clinics. And so smart, so smart are they that they get their people on school boards in all the local areas so they can vote in other candidates that can make these laws and support these misogynist dictates. So all of this is the result of years and years of very persistent, coordinated, strategical, tactical work that they have gotten to where they've gotten. I said it started in 77 with the Hyde Amendment. Why didn't we have a massive outpouring in 77? We didn't have it because, like most of the people, you know, I can always get an abortion. And I go back to the lack of radical empathy. Everybody is in their own identity silo. So if it doesn't affect me, it's okay. Now what we're looking at is a real cold civil war. It's not that cold. I still have the people outside of my clinic today, actually, and I'm speaking you, speaking to you from inside uh, of choices. But we are in a civil war. That's another thing that Milbank criticized me for saying. And I have talked about the overground railroad. I'm seeing patients that are coming in from Texas and other states because they can't get services. So this is happening now, and of course, if we don't know our history, we wouldn't know that it started five years, ten years ago, that 20 years ago, you know, this doctor was killed, or this clinic was invaded, or this clinic was burned down, because, you know, hey, they'll never take it away, mm-hmm. you see? So as, as everybody just thought these were individual incidents, you know, um, and I, I attacked uh, so many of the people that, like the church, which is the first time I went out to St. Patrick's, and I was attacking the Catholic Church and Cardinal O'Connor, 
because he publicly supported Randall Terry with Operation Rescue. And, you know, the argument, it's free speech. You can say what you want. You know, if they say you're going to burn in hell or whatever they say, it's free speech. They're testifying and whatever. Well, so this is where we're at. This is where we've come to. Mm-hmm. And, and I think in, in planning any strategies or any answers to what's happening now, we have to look at the history because there are things that work and don't work. And one thing that doesn't work is uh, everybody or every organization in the movement doing their own tactics and their own way of dealing with it. And there's no real coordinated agreement on what is the strategy and what is the goal here, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah, and that, that, that's very important. And I think it's actually, it's also, look, I mean, first, you know, looking at the view of the, the post-world, the post-row world, does not come close. I mean, this is, and this is something you're, you're pointing to. It doesn't come close to the horror that the world would be for tens of millions of women and the further horrors that will follow after that. And, I, and before we uh, jump into this, I want to let people know that this is the Michael Slate Show. And right now, I am very happy to be talking to, <laughs> to Merle, Merle Hoffman. That's it. Okay, I'm, it's been a long day. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, what time is it there? You're uh, yeah, yeah, I know. It's, 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 yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> it's hard anyway. Um, but Merle, you know, we've been talking about this. We've been talking about this for a while. And I really want to, you know, make it clear to people that the, all the little fascist governors, the legislatures, they all got the message. And, and, you know, and since September, they've been unleashing a tsunami of increasingly right. vicious, you know, in, and increasingly anti-women laws, and this is right. ha- has accelerated. And this is something right. that people have to understand. It's accelerated, and what's the what what's it what's the danger of that? What is the danger? What is the danger of enslaving half more yeah. than half of this population? Mm-hmm. We've been dealing with slavery a lot now, very self-critically as a country, haven't we? Having constant conversations all over about what it means to be a racist, what it means to, to have responsibility, or all these intensely profound, important questions on the issue of race. Well, let's turn our gaze on the issue of women and women's freedom and women's lives, because they damn well matter. They matter. But, you know, I mean, the women themselves, when people ask me, you know, this, well, you know, what do you think I can do? Or, you know, or, or why did it get no? It starts with, aren't you depressed? <laughs> why are you really frustrated and depressed about where it's going and where it's at and i'm not and i tell them i'm not and then i tell them why and then and then i said listen you know you have to look in the mirror and you, you know when you ask yourself how did it get this way you look in the mirror and say what have i done you know i mean you've known people listen one out of four women in this country will have an abortion in her lifetime. That's the statistical probability, and it's been proven. Okay, one out of four. Since legalization, millions of American women have had abortions. That means their partners, their husbands, their fathers, their sons, you know, all of their circle of connections. So to me, abortion is American as apple pie, basically, because it's just so many people have been touched by it. But how many people will come out and say yes, I've been touched by it, my, my mother, my sister, I, whatever, see, so we're back to that. It always comes back to, it always comes back to the individual, you see. I, you know, you can have mass, 
you know, mass discussions, mass movements, but in the end, it's the individual who has to say, what does my conscience tell me? What is my reality? You know, what does it mean for me to take responsibility for this moral choice? Okay? Mm -hmm. So it has to come back to that. Now, we're running up on our time, but I want to get make sure that we're able to talk about these two things, right? And one is that you know, tell us again how to be part of this, all right? Because that's really important, and especially the green wave, green for abortion. And then the next thing would be, thank you very much for coming onto the show. <laughs> and I know you're, 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 you know, basically monumentally busy right now. And the sisters and brothers get involved, stand up, and be sure to follow Merle Hoffman on Twitter. So let's talk about those two points, and just especially the last one. Let people know how they can follow you. Okay, so let's go to the the first one telling about the, uh, you know, basically the, <laughs> the green wave kind of thing. So let's, let's talk well, the about green this. Wave, I, want, I want everyone to think, right, to think green, to wear green, particularly on the 7th, 8th, and 9th as we get ready for the big national rallies that we're going to hold across this country. And as I said, you know, if you want to get involved in a different way and learn some history and know about, or, you know, why and how we initiated this movement, and this action and this rising, you can log on to its Rise Up For, the number four, riseupforabortionrights.org. And you can sign a statement against what the Supreme Court is most likely going to do. You can learn about what we've done. You can listen to the speeches. You can see, you know, we're, we're expanding our website now to give a lot more, uh, a lot more of the history, etc., so I would urge everybody to log on to that website and get some information. And if you can't come out and rally, you can wear a green scarf or something green, something green. And you can get to the top of it, wherever you have, get to the highest part and just yell like hell. Okay, just tell people, we will not accept this. And I would ask everybody to look in the mirror and just say, if not me, then who? And if not now, when? Which was a quote from old Rabbi Hillel centuries ago. But I think that question resonates. It resonates. You know, we sit back and say, well, somebody else will take care of it. They're not going to take care of this. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sorry, but it's time for adulting. Like I teach my daughter, you have to adult. You know, <laughs> you take responsibility. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, Merle, we're going to have to wrap this up, but I want to thank you very much for joining us. And we've got to stay in touch, so right? I loved it. Okay, okay, take care now. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and we've just been talking with Merle Hoffman of Rise Up for Abortion Rights. We're, t- we're going to take a quick musical break and be right back, so stay tuned, all right? If one woman hurts, if one woman cries, if one man bleeds, rise. Up, get up, dance up, get up, sing up, get up, change everything. Up, get up, dance up, get up, sing up, get up, change everything. Silence must stop, violence must end, broken body and spirit will rise again. Strength in numbers, take a stand, right the wrongs, don't Get up. 
no soul erased, no promise left empty. We're taking our place. If one woman hurts, if one woman cries, if one... That was Rise by Betty, okay? And I got to, you know, I want to I want to make a, actually a point here because I think it's, I don't want to leave this sit, just sit in places, all right? But people, and I'm going to remind you all through this, all right? Saturday, April 9th, we need to, to, make, to make it known. We need to make ourselves known. We need to think, you know, it's not just about women. It's not just women are responsible, but all of us, all of us, we cannot allow this kind of horror to go on. And it's just one more thing, right? And that's Saturday, April 9th. All right. And um, again, as I said, this is the Michael Slate Show. And we were talking with Meryl Hoffman of Rise Up for Abortion Rights. And now our next guest is Noche Diaz. And people who've listened to the show uh, have heard Noche Diaz's voice quite a few times here. And I'm really happy to have him back again. He's the national spokesperson for, Revolu- for the Revolution Club. And uh, Noche. And we'll be talking about uh, the war in Ukraine what the U.S. is doing, and what the people here and around the world need to understand and to act on. Noche, welcome to the show, man. How you doing, Michael? Thank you for having me. And I just want to, you know, start by appreciating uh, your conversation with Meryl Hoffman. And uh, I want your listeners to know I'll be there looking for them on uh, April 9th. Great. All right, let's jump into this because I want you to have a chance to talk hard on this, right? The, the, the first, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a naked power grab a totally unjustified slaughter waged under phony pretenses, as Revcom.us put it. Any decent person should oppose this, but people in the U.S. in particular need to think about what Bob Avakian said recently, okay? And I think you could actually talk about that right now, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, know, Bob Avakian has been uh, uh, saying and pointing, cutting through a lot of the nonsense and the noise, and one of the things he says is, that the essence of the conflict between the U.S. and countries like Russia and China is not one between democracy and authoritarianism, but a matter of rivalry among imperialist powers, all of which are monstrous oppressors of masses of people, and none of which represent or act in the interests of humanity. And right now, this is very important, not just as a matter of principle, but people should actually do some work and go and look at what has gone on throughout the world and what's been done by this country, um, and really look seriously about this nonsense and lie about the conflict being about democracy versus authoritarianism. Russia has its batch of lies that it used to justify the brutal invasion of Ukraine. And we've all seen the horrific consequences of that for people there. But the U.S. has its batch of lies that it uses to rally people behind not only its other war crimes and crimes against humanity, its acts of military intervention and invasion and assassinations and coup d'etats, and other acts of military aggression, but also a batch of lies about why it needs to be the good guys and the responsible adult in acting in relationship to what is happening to Ukraine. And this is a way in which people are having their hearts and minds played and pulled around in order, you know, in seeing, again, you see hospitals, apartment buildings, Schools being bombed or, or destroyed in other ways. Refugees flooding Eastern Europe. And it shocks the conscience and tears at the heart. But the fact is that this, again, is not like democracy versus authoritarianism. But you see two rival gangsters, the U.S. and its NATO alliance and Russia and its attempt to, you know, 
create its own version of an alliance, competing over turf, where the lives of millions of people hang in the balance, including the very possibility that this conflict could escalate to a world war and a nuclear confrontation that could spell an existential threat to humanity. This is what's going on, and it's irresponsible for so many people, including decent people, to continue to get played by all this puffed-up nonsense from Joe Biden and all of the mouthpieces that are apologizing for this country and demanding that the U.S. carry out more military aid and intervention. It is irresponsible to rally behind all of that uh, war drum-beating and to encourage the U.S. to carry out a no-fly zone and to get more directly involved in this conflict when, when so much is at stake. And when, you know, and, and when you're living in this country, which not only has a history of throughout the world doing the same kind of thing on a much bigger scale, including right now ongoingly supporting, arming, and backing the massacre that has been going on for years in Yemen, but also in, in the case of Ukraine, has been meddling and interfering in, that, in, in Ukraine directly for the last at least uh, 18 years. And it's currently using, again, this situation to further its military alliances, its military, economic, and political domination of not only that part of the world, but the world as a whole. So this is very important because right now people are getting whipped up behind this. And, and, and I've seen people even encouraging and, and promoting and trying to urge on more direct U.S. military invo- involvement, including uh, liberal talking heads on TV, openly talking about how the U.S. has assassinated world leaders before, criminally, by the way, they don't mention and, and promoting for the same kind of thing to be done in Russia right now. This is escalating things to a point that is very reckless and dangerous for all of humanity to get dragged into a world war conflict between rival gangsters. Mm-hmm. This, is, you know, this is why it's very important for people to be you know, challenged around this right now. Yeah, definitely. And the, and the thing is, again, you know, the U.S. always likes to start the clock wherever this, you know, where it suits them, their, their particular narrative about the world events and what's going on. And in this case... This, this whole thing, their, their clock starts on February 24th, and anything before that doesn't count. But there's been a long, long U.S. campaign to do two things. Open up Ukraine to ex- exploitation by U.S. capitalism and use it as a military base against its imperialist rivals in Russia. Can you briefly t- touch on that? We, I want to get, there's a lot I want to get through to you, but briefly touch, you know, touch on that because it's, it's something that people don't get, you know, no, no matter how much it's yeah, out there. That's right, and it connects back to this nonsense about how uh, the U.S. tries to pose itself as the leader of the free world, and we can go on and on and talk forever about how, you know, what what this country has done throughout the world, but even in Ukraine, you know, again, going back to the early 2000s of of, uh, moving moving to undermine elections in Ukraine and to uh, manipulate uh, popular uh, uprisings, in order to destabilize the regime in in Ukraine, and to oppose any you know, any any um, government officials that are elected that are that are not favorable to opening up to to the U.S. and and uh, Western alliances and and investment really, um, and then you know this is you know and took on even uh, heightened um, expression in, in 2014, 
And, you know, I don't, you know, again, we don't have time to go into a whole history lesson, but people, you really do need to go and actually look at it because you're constantly told everything just started yesterday, last week, last month, whatever it is. And you're, you know, you spoke with Merrill just briefly um, a while ago about how, how much people short-term memories and amnesia about, about history is relied on to carry out, you know, even greater crimes. But when it comes to what this country does around the world, this is not only also true, but this is even, you know, this is even greater in terms of always painting the U.S. as the good guys going out to stop the bad guys. And, you know, as it poses as, again, the leader of the free world and talking about democracy versus authoritarianism, the fact is that in Ukraine and throughout the world, the U.S., whenever it has served its interests, has undermined and worked against peace, you know, elections, the sovereignty of nations and the right to self-determination. This, this is not what this conflict is actually about. It, it is it, you being support or passively accept the U.S. carrying out great crimes against humanity in, in its interest, in the service of its imperialist bloc, while it carries out its rivalry with Russia, which, to be clear, is another imperialist gangster that carries out crimes against humanity. But siding with either of these is... is is something that is only going to strengthen this whole dynamic of war and potential world war and nuclear conflict. And let's not forget, talking about history beginning last month, when it comes to the danger of nuclear war and annihilation of human beings, mm-hmm. the United States is the only country that has ever used nuclear weapons and has the second largest stockpile of nuclear weapons in the world today. And if you're, if you're listening to what they're talking about, they ain't hiding it. And they're talking openly talking about, oh, we could do that. We could use that. You know, we could, maybe we need to do that. You know, and that's, a, that's the kind of world that we're living in, and that's the kind of country that we are living in. You know, and I think that this is, you know, there's basically, there's, there's something, I, I, there's a lot of, so many things I want to talk to you about, but we are running late. So I want to talk a little bit more about this, all right? You know, this whole thing we've been talking about, about the, 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 the problems that, that are facing us now because of what is being done by this country, okay? And on the RNL show, you featured a quotation by Bob Avakian from the book Basics. And I'll just read this. It says, oppressed people who are unable or unwilling to confront reality as it actually is are condemned to remain enslaved and oppressed. And I think it's important that people understand this. Why is it so important, though? Why is it important to have a scientific understanding of what the hell is going on in the Ukraine and the world in general and why it's important to act? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think as Bob makes pretty clear, Bob Vakian makes pretty clear in that quote, you know, in terms of like, you know, what, what's at stake. But it's, it's what we've been talking about. If people don't look at the evidence, you know, this is what being scientific is about, looking at the evidence, right, and then and confronting reality as it is, you know, you're vulnerable to getting played and manipulated. And this is exactly what we see unfolding right now. People unable or unwilling to confront reality. Um, not just condemned to be, remain enslaved and oppressed themselves, but to contribute to keeping people that way. You know, being told that the U.S. are the good guys in the world, when in reality, throughout its entire history, it is the it is the U.S. is number one when it comes to illegal, unjust, and criminal invasion and military interventions and crimes against humanity. The U.S. is number one when it comes to bombing and, and death from above and drone missiles. The USA is number one when it comes to threatening nuclear war, uh, which threatens the existence of humanity. 
And the people in this country especially have a responsibility to, in the face of all of this hysteria being whipped up, demanding for greater U.S. military intervention, seem to raise the demand, no U.S. and NATO war against Russia, no World War III. This system, not humanity, is what needs to go out of existence. Mm -hmm. All right, we're going to have to stop this now, but we're going to have you back very soon, man, because there's so much more to talk about, all right? All right, thank you for having me, Michael. Yeah, thank you, man. Take care. You're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and I'm Michael Slate. I'm going to take a quick musical break and be right back, so stay tuned. Money, 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 money. The whispering voice of money. All right. Um, basically, I wanna I really want to jump into this very quickly, all right, because it's 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 really important that we actually try to get through all of the things that we planned on doing today. And I think that there's like the, the point of really recognizing what the danger is and what's being done. All right. And you have something you can do about this, sisters and brothers, and that's important, okay? It's important to have a scientific understanding of what's going on. It's important to be able to recognize what's happening, and what we, what we need to do about it, all right? And this is the Michael Slate Show, as I told you, and I'm Michael Slate. Now, our next guest is Peter Richards, who is directing a play with the poetic title, A Public Reading of an Unproduced Screenplay about the death of Walt Disney. And I think somebody just hung him up. <laughs> so, uh, so, and instead of a, of, of a public reading of a performance, this is actually a performance of a public reading, okay? And it's really, it's a remarkable piece. It's really, I am crazy about this, all right? And Peter Richards is a sometimes actor and creative director. And Lucy Pollock sent me a long list of his projects, but two struck me. He directed Chekhov, uh, Chekhov's The Seagull on a farm in Maine. And he directed a state, he directed a staging of Julius Caesar with a masked Greek chorus. And no, Julius Caesar was not alive. <laughs> Although, who knows who's playing that out. And uh, Peter, welcome to the show, man. Thanks, Michael. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Let's jump into this, okay? So so right now, you're doing some pretty, I think, some pretty good stuff here. So let's jump into this. How did you discover this play that we're talking about and what it's about? Uh, 
So I, I first came across this script. Uh, I, I read it back in 2013, and I saw the, the world premiere production of it in, in New York City at, at Soho Rep. And uh, I just love the script. It's, it's, Lucas Nath is a really amazing playwright. He's written a couple of plays that have been on Broadway, uh, one called Hillary and Clinton, and another one called uh, A Doll's House Part Two. And this script, um, his use of language is just really um, mesmerizing. I mean, it's elliptical, repetitive, poetic, um, really musical. The experience of the play is um, as much about the sound as it is about about the storytelling and 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 the visual aspect. Um, and the and the structure of the play is fascinating. I mean, it's in, it's in the title. Uh, it's a it's a reading of a, of a screenplay. And uh, the screenplay is written by a, a fictional version of Walt Disney, and uh, it's about uh, he's he's dying, so he's he's interested in, in sort of telling his own story before he, he goes out, and uh, and it's a group of actors who have gotten together to do a reading um, of uh, of this screenplay, and uh, and the dialogue is 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 this fast paced kind of fragmented dialogue uh, that's highly poetic and really, really unique. So, uh, yeah, when I first read the script, I was just fascinated by it. And I thought, you know, I, I grew up here in Southern California, and I thought that uh, that the story would really resonate here uh, here in L.A. So, so that's what drew me to it. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things, and I think people really need to <laughs> want to know, a little bit more about this, you know, because I think it's it's very important to people to understand the kind of work that you're doing. And I and you know, look, I'm from the generation that watched the Disney show Sunday nights and saw this friendly looking guy with a sense of humor. And when we grew up, you know, we had little mouseketeer hats and all these other things that made us look not nuts, but we were actually it it they it did did something to, to our understanding of the world. And I think now when I'm, I'm, you know, I'm from that generation that watched these shows and saw this friendly looking guy with a sense of humor. When we grew up, we learned other things. He was friendly with all kinds of pro-Nazi movements that were particularly strong right here in Los Angeles. He welcomed the Nazi filmmaker Lenny Riefenstahl to his studio just a month after Kristallnacht. You know, let's talk about this because the playwright Luca um, Nath say, st- stated it's not a bioplay. What's being dramatized here is the idea of Walt Disney. What do, you, what do you think about that? What do you think that means? So, so the playwright Lucas Nath, uh, he's exactly right. So, so this is a fictional, a fictional version of Walt Disney. And, and one of the things that he's really interested in is uh, creating a kind of tension between uh, the idea of Walt Disney that audience members are going to bring uh, into the show, into the theater, in their own head, uh, by virtue of the fact that, that Disney himself is so famous, and we all have seen Disney movies, and we, we, we know a little bit about Walt Disney the person. And so we have this idea of, of who this celebrity is in our own head, and we're going to bring that version to the theater, and then we're going to be confronted uh, by the playwright's version of Walt Disney, which is going to be very different than the version that's in our head. And uh, Nace calls this uh, stereoscopic theatricality. So a, a stereoscopic image is an image that's created from taking two separate images of the same object uh, that are taken from two different angles 
And then when you combine those images, uh, the, the final image gives a sense of greater depth. And so uh, Lucas Nath is, is, is calling sort of what he's doing in this play uh, stereoscopic theatricality by, by creating this tension between these two ideas of, 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 of Walt Disney. And he's done this, um, interestingly, in, in a number of plays that he's written. Um, he wrote plays about Hillary Clinton. He wrote a play about Isaac Newton, Anna Nicole Smith, and, and also Walt Disney. So uh, uh, it's something that he really likes to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, it definitely does. <laughs> and I, I want to, we're running up on our time, but I want to get some, a couple things in. And I think it's, you know, one of the things that you've, you've, you've talked about is finally getting back to the title here, all right, that there, there have been many plays within a play. Shakespeare did it a number of times, including in Hamlet, but a reading of a play within a play, this has got to be a first, okay? <laughs> At least I think it is. But the play, but the playwright Lucas Nath is unknown or is known for unique approaches that are somewhat that are some of his other works. What are some of his other works? So perhaps his most well-known work is a is a play called A Doll's House Part Two, which uh, he wrote as a as a kind of sequel to the classic play uh, A Doll's House by Henrik Ibsen, and uh, famously at the end of that play. Um, the protagonist of that play uh, walks out on her family. She leaves. She leaves her husband and her daughter um, because she lives a very oppressive life uh, in a very traditional uh, kind of arrangement, and she she wants to be independent. And so she kind of uh, shuts the door and, and leaves her family. And so uh, his play imagines what would happen if. Um, if she showed up at the door of her family uh, 20 years later and her, her daughter's all grown up but did, didn't know her and her husband is um, bitter from, from her leaving. So it's a kind of sequel to, to, to that famous play, A Doll's House. Um, and then, you know, he, he also wrote this play about uh, called Hillary and Clinton, which was on Broadway, uh, uh, about Hillary and, and Bill Clinton, which, again, similar to this play, is, is not supposed to represent the real-life um, people, but it, Lucas is interested in getting at other questions through uh, an investigation of, of, of these, these sort of uh, larger-than-life characters that we all know. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and actually, I think I, we have time for maybe a quick, one more quick thing, which I think, you know, look, this whole point of this is, you know, the playwright um, Lucas... Uh, basically stated it's not a bio it's not a bio play it's what's being dramatized in, in is the whole idea it's the idea of Walt Disney you know and I think that's that's something I remember you know when I first came out to, to, to this to the West Coast even as I was I was I was a, you know a, a, a rebel a basically someone someone who was fighting off the system and all this other stuff but I still found myself oddly enough attracted to hmm what's going on over here <laughs> I think, and finding that, you know, because that's what we were trained in and as, as kids. And when I, you know, when we were trained to actually love that, you know, all the stuff that, 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 you know, that they were, that they put out on us, that has been put out time after time after time, telling us what a great world it is. And then we end up seeing what it really is. And it, and a lot of times people don't, don't understand what the purpose of that is or what, what, what the, what's the, outcome of that. So can you give us just a quick, unfortunately it's just a short period of time, but can you talk to us a little bit about 
you know, what's happening there. What, 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 what happened? And then we'll have to just split. All right. Yeah, sure. So, you know, this, this, what you brought up, this question of, you know, what is, what is real and, and, and what is fake and how do we get our understanding of what is real? I mean, one episode that's, uh, that's dramatized in the play is this, uh, this kind of urban legend about about lemmings. I mean, we've all had the the sort of insult of you know you're 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 doing something like a lemming, meaning you're you're just following your friends and you're you can do something so sort of stupid as jump off of a cliff and commit suicide just because your friends are doing that. We all know that lemmings lemmings um, you know run off cliffs in big groups and uh, uh, they, they commit suicide together. That's that's kind of an urban legend. Well, it turns out that that is is not true and the reason why we think it's true is that uh, the disney corporation produced a documentary called white wilderness and uh they they showed lemmings jumping off of a cliff um and and had a narration that suggested that they do this and and commit suicide for 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 their own reasons but in fact, that was uh, basically uh, made up, and and the and the folks who made the film uh, helped the lemmings sort of run off the cliff so that they could film them doing something a lot more interesting than just hanging out, and uh, and so this this urban legend has been embedded in many of our minds, but um, but essentially it was it was it was faked so that so that we could have a very interesting documentary. So. Um, you know, it's uh, it's fascinating how how these ideas get uh, get embedded in our minds. And Walt Disney is um, historically, you know, very powerful in terms of, of 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 how it tells stories and and transmits knowledge. And not all of it is one hundred percent accurate. <laughs> yeah, and not all of it is is safe for human humanity and other forms of life <laughs> this is this is these people are these people are long 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 into fascism basically and that's something people should never forget all right now we're going to have to I, I god i wish we could talk a little bit more i'll have to get you a little bit get you on the show again and we'll talk it a little bit with in a little bit more depth because there's a lot of stuff that, that i think really we need to talk about all right so peter thank you very much for joining us today yeah, I, I, I should say though what, what, one quick thing. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the play is not intended to, to totally demonize Walt Disney. And um, <laughs> uh, damn you! <laughs> Go ahead. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's and it's and it's uh, it's a, it's a fictional it's a fictional version of it. So um, <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, it it doesn't really delve delve into some to all of the. Um, controversial aspects right, right. Of, 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 of how people feel about, about Disney. All right, Peter. On that note, we're going to have to wrap up because the people are yelling at me, get off the air! So, all right, so thanks for the, everything you're doing. I look forward to seeing more of it. Take care, all right? Thank you. All right, take care now. All right, uh, this is the Michael Slate Show, and I'm Michael Slate, and that brings us to the end of yet another show. Now, I want to thank my guests, Merle Hoffman, Noche Diaz, and Peter Richards. I also want to thank my assistant producer, Henry Carson, and my engineer today, uh, Wendell, and basically all of you for tuning in. If you want to write to me, you can at mslate at themichaelslateshow.com. Once again, that's mslate at themichaelslateshow.com. And I'll talk to you again next week, but keep on getting, just getting angry and standing up and saying, no, I'm not going to live like this, all right?
this song is uh, entitled to it from my latest LP, which is entitled Wake Up Everybody. And I'm sure you will all agree there are things that need to be done in this country today. So what I'd like for you to do is listen very carefully and see what you can do to lend a hand. Yeah. 